the Jackie Chan, the new one. I'm not talking about the new one. I'm talking about the old school Ralph Macchio, that karate kid. And one thing that I love about this karate kid is that for those of us who are experiencing tough times or, or look to tomorrow and think, man, tomorrow doesn't look pretty good, it can give a little bit of hope there. That's part of what the karate kid can do for the downtrodden, the bullied, the faint at heart. So one thing, uh, the story centers around a guy named Daniel LaRusso. And Daniel goes to a t small town with his mom, and immediately he starts getting bullied by these guys. Enter Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi is this gentle, quiet, wonderful man that comes into Daniel's life and he starts passing along some of the things that he's learned surrounding like martial arts and, and how to live well. He becomes Daniel's sensei. Now, one of the things that Daniel does is starts to learn is uh, from the sensei. Sensei, by the way, is a Chinese and evidently Japanese term and it means born, the one who was born before or it's a term of honor, and essentially it means teacher. That's the general usage. But for Daniel, karate ended up changing his entire life. It became a means for a new life, and so that's why he ended up becoming the karate kid. Now, what does this have to do with our topic today? Well, the writer of our passage, Paul, he didn't always have the same joyful, Jesus-y outlook on life. In fact, his outlook used to be very much full of hatred and violence, and particularly when it was pointed towards those who didn't have the same religious understandings as he did, didn't live life the same way. But then Paul met Jesus, and everything changed. He learned the gospel, and it changed his entire life. So for Paul, the gospel became the means to a new life. So he's like the gospel kid, or the gospel guy, if you will. We're, we're continuing our uh, series in Philippians today, and you could say that Paul is passing on some of the things that he's learned over the 25, 30 years that he has been under Jesus. You could say that Jesus was Paul's sensei. And so he's been learning for, from him for many years, and now we've reached a point where Paul's in prison prison in Philippi, and he's wanting to write this letter and pass on some of the incredible things that he's learned. Our passage today is Philippians 2, and it's verses 11, or 1 to 11, and this is an incredibly rich, deep passage that you're going to be able to get a lot out of. Uh, but today, the one big idea that I want you to pull from this is that life isn't all about you, it's about others too. It's not all, because I'm stressing the all, because life is still a lot about us. It has lots to do with us. But we need to keep in mind that it is still a lot, and some would say mostly about other people and doing things for them. This is especially interesting if you consider the context of our passage. So if you, we were to read back into chapter 1, verse 30, we would see that the church in Philippi, they're starting to experience, Paul says, a lot of the same things that he was when he was there. And namely, that's persecution. Things like beatings or imprisonments. 
So Paul is setting them up by saying, particularly in this time, this is, these are truths that you want to emulate at all times, but particularly in this time, when times are tough, you need to stick together. Philippians is a book that is written for people experiencing tough times and how they can stay joyful but stay close-knit in community. It's very important. So this is because we are not experiencing imprisonments or beatings here, this doesn't mean, though, that we get to tune out and not pay attention to what Paul is saying. Because, friends, tough times are relative, aren't they? We can all experience them. And in fact, we do all experience struggles each and every day. And if you're, if you're sitting here today, you're, you're hoping that the people in your community are listening to what we're going to learn today. Because you want to know that when you go through a tough time, that there's going to be somebody there that's thinking about you. That you're not alone. But you also want to be making sure you're paying attention and, and thinking this stuff through. Because we all have the responsibility, the privilege to be able to help out our friends in our community when tough times are happening, to know that they can come to us and to lean on us when things are tough. So we're going to jump in and we're going to look in at each verse and we're going to see that Paul gives us motivation to put others first in the first few verses there. And then he's going to show us the means by which we can do it. He's going to give us some practical advice. And then He's going to show us a glorious picture of Christ as the master and a way to emulate that sort of behavior. So we're going to see some motivation, then we're going to see the means, and then we're going to see the master. Verse 1. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? And he fellowship together in the spirit. Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. With one mind and purpose. Now, if you're like me and you pick up when Paul says, make me happy. It's like, really, Paul? Is that, is that what we should be doing this for? Is to, is to make make you happy. You write this nice letter and you start off, we should be looking to other people and now you're telling us to make you happy, really? Thankfully, Paul isn't actually saying that that's the purpose. That's not the motivation. He's speaking incidentally here and he's saying, incidentally, this is actually what's going to happen to me. If you guys are behaving in this way, it's going to make me happy. But the reason that we should be doing the things we're doing, the things that he says we should be doing, is that it, it should be obvious to us. Paul essentially here is putting on his, his Captain Obvious uniform and pointing out these things that should be obvious to us. As one comedian likes to respond, because it's, it's always it makes me laugh too, when guys brag about things that they should be doing in life, he's like, what? You want a cookie? You're supposed to be you know, looking after your kids or paying your taxes or not going to jail or something like that. But for some reason, sometimes I think a lot of us guys, like we like to brag about doing things that really we should just be doing normally. We, there's no extra brownie points for doing things that we should be doing. It should be normal. 
So Paul's words here, what he's doing is he's creating what's called a conditional statement. If these things are happening, if you're experiencing compassion and love in Christ, then this is going to be the outworking of it. He then says what everyone should do, going into the means, with the direct result being the community. Remember, we want a community that's whole and moving forward with one goal in mind, one purpose. And then so now he gives the means. Verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. And that's not like impress like, hey, I'm going on a date later and I really want it. That's okay. You know, you're allowed to impress that way. He's talking about trying to impress people unnecessarily or to try to show off. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your interests, but take an interest in others too. So this obviously is an exhaustive list of what it takes to be a good person. What he's getting at is some of the foundational values that should undergird each community as we think about our relationship to one another, to the community as a whole. We know this, I think, because once we get to verse 5, it's going to be pretty clear, but we're going to get there in a second. But first, we want to talk about context and and how we operate in, in certain situations. I would say that every context has unwritten rules to it. Every situation you find yourself in, whether it's cultural or whatever, there's certain things that people do that they're not written down. Take baseball. There's the three strikes and you're out written rules. But then there's also the don't show up a pitcher after you hit a home run off him, unwritten rules. If if you're a baseball fan, you'd probably remember the bat flip heard around the world. Uh, a couple of years ago when Jose Bautista broke that rule about not showing up the picture and tossed his bat 30 feet after hitting a home run. Needless to say, when you break some of these unwritten rules, it, it doesn't do the community well. It doesn't bring you closer together. The Jays, when they play the Rangers, they still uh, get after one another. Our world I would argue, is is governed by rules that have been written down, particularly moral rules and things of the like, and I would say that they're written down in no uncertain terms here. But even if you've never written the Bible, most people in most places at most times intuitively understand God's law. Most people that you meet know that you're not supposed to kill and rape and et cetera, et cetera. We, We intuitively understand that stuff. We don't have to read it here. You don't need to see it in an after-school special. Your pastor doesn't have to tell you that. Your grandma doesn't have to tell you that. You just know these things. In our passage today, Paul is saying that life isn't about us. It's not all, right, about us. It's about others, too. And so what he's saying is that we don't ignore ourselves. We have to engage with what we're thinking, but just don't think that we're better and deserve more than other people. So now we're going to get to verse 5 and get a, a precursor. Paul says, you must have the same attitude. So this is how he says, you're going to accomplish all of this, friends. You're going to accomplish this. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. 
You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Whenever I see somebody doing something really well, and I want to do that same sort of thing, I know that I try to emulate them. I try to mimic them at what they're doing. We're always, I think, as people, we're inspired to do the same thing when in the face of excellence. When we see something, somebody doing that really well, we want to copy that. Because in that moment, we become inspired to be able to participate in the same way. And the people that are inspiring us are usually doing something, as far as we're concerned, the best. Doing it in a way that we would like to be able to do, whether it's singing, making movies, you know, throwing a curveball, calculating the distance across the galaxy. Whatever it is, we see people doing something excellently, and we want to mimic that. Here, Paul is calling us to have Jesus' selfless attitude because it is the best. It's the best. Now, before we move on, I just wanted to quickly push pause before we get into the verses 6 and 11, 6 through 11. Push pause, and I wanted just to, to make sure that we're, we're picking up on how special these next verses are and how incredible it is that we get to read them. Because these verses are quite special because they connect us to the very earliest worship practices of the early church, more than a lot of other places. This passage in particular, there's some debate as to whether Paul's writing it himself, but I, I'm led to believe that he's quoting an early creed or hymn from just a few years after the death of Jesus. So the very earliest, earliest church would have used this as a means of better knowing their Lord. It's a deep, wonderful connection that they would have read together as a means of knowing God better, but as a means of unifying their community. So I'm going to ask that we read this together. You don't need to stand up, but we're going to read these, these verses, and then I'm going to swing back around and then talk or get back into them. So verse 6. Though he was God, so say with me, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God highly elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage. So, though he was God, he did not think equality with God was something to cling to. Didn't want to hang on to those privileges. So, Jesus is God. Right? We can, we can agree with that. And so when he took on flesh, he didn't care to remain or retain, pardon me, the status of God. I remember when I used to work at, at Little Caesars, we had an owner, or the owner of the Little Caesars used to sometimes come on shift with us, teenage 
pizza flipping meatheads. And he would come and he would work alongside of us and flip pizzas and take breaks just like us, not wanting to be treated. He was still the owner and could have just walked off any time or done anything that he wanted to do, but yet he just wanted to be with us and make pizzas with us. Jesus is God. Take a second to wrap your heads around that one for a second. He helped create the entire universe and he holds it together. But he wanted to come down and, and, and wash people's feet. Isn't that, isn't it un, it's incredible. Verse seven, so instead of clinging to his rights as God, he gave up his divine privileges. Now, it doesn't mean he lost them or didn't have access to them. He gave up the desire to use them. And he took the humble position of a slave or servant, and he was born as a human being. So the enormity of this fact is it's literally impossible, I think, for us to get our, our heads wrapped around God becoming a human being. We can get God being a person because God already is a person, right? That, that's easy for us, or easier, I guess, for us to grasp. But the whole God becoming a human being thing is tough because we have no box to put that in, but I'm game. I'm going to try to see if I can illustrate this at least rudimentarily. I don't know if that's actually a word. If it isn't, it is now. But I'm going to try to make that, try to help this jive a little bit. I'm going to do that using galaxies. So what's the name of our galaxy? Milky Way, right? So here's some fun facts about the Milky Way. The Milky Way in distance, it will, sorry, first it's a barred spiral galaxy. It's a barred spiral galaxy. So I think we got a picture of it. It looks like a throwing star in the sky. So it's more of that karate sort of theme, right? Oh. Barred spiral galaxy. And now it's 100,000 light years across. Now when they measure light going across, they can measure it in distance, right? So that's one quintillion kilometers across. So that's one with 15 zeros past it. It's pretty big. The Milky Way it contains over 200 billion stars. So right, our sun is a star, and it's not even it's not the biggest one. There's there's 200 billion of them in our galaxy. Uh, they've measurements. I think they managed to find a scale at Walmart or on Amazon or something like that that weighs galaxies. But they they measured, they weighed it, and they weighed it between 400 billion and 780 billion times the mass of our sun. It is absolutely enormous. So why am I talking about galaxies? In the movie Men in Black 1, this, what? the story centers around the bad guys wanting to attain a galaxy. And so the good guys, they're confused, right? Because like, galaxies are enormous. How in the world are you going to attain this? And the clue that they're following as they run around is that the galaxy is on Orion's belt. And they're like, what, Orion's belt? Like Orion's, it's a constellation in the galaxy, but the galaxy's in the, you know, is this inception? Like, what's going on? Turns out that one of the characters, his cat, is named Orion, and he's an alien. And he's an alien that, that landed in Eastern Europe, and so his English wasn't that good, so he was calling Orion's collar a belt. And so it turns out the galaxy is in a little glass ball 
about this, about the size of a large marble, and it's around Orion's belt. So this galaxy, this massive, powerful galaxy that the bad guys want, sorry, not massive, this small galaxy the bad guys want, but it still has all of the power and energy of a galaxy, has now, it's accessible to human beings. Jesus, God, retained the same power. He's still the same. He's God. He has all of that power at his fingertips. But he made himself more accessible, more present to human beings. Why would he do that? Well, he did it to show us how life's done. To show us what it means to be truly human. It says that Jesus was born as a slave. And if you don't like that word, think servant. He was born as a servant. Being born in the likeness of people. So if you want to know what a, a, a person, part of what is in our makeup is, is to be a servant. We're, we're to love God and to love people. That's what we're all about. And so when he was born and became human, that was his, or that's how it ended up. So when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. So none of us have ever experienced, I, I hope, a, a crucifixion, um, either witnessed it or, or had it done to them. But it is unbelievably brutal. It's horrific. So why would somebody, especially of Jesus' stature, want to do that to himself, knowingly subject himself to that, to this humiliating death. Well, Paul says he did it in obedience to the Father. He humbled himself to God the Father. He did what was required of him. And I think a really good way of looking at this is using monarchies. And I know a lot of us, we have mixed reviews on monarchies, right? Some of us are like, yay, monarchies! And some of us are like, monarchies! Right? We don't like them, or, or we don't understand them, particularly in the West, where uh, th there's been some abuses with them. But monarchies really help us, even though we don't understand necessarily always what they're for, or what monarchies are actually meant to do. We mostly think that often they're just handed down licenses to, you know, live it up and, you know, spend lots of stuff and step on the necks of servants and, and all of that sort of thing. But in fact, monarchies were created for the exact opposite of that. They've been misused. We've probably heard the saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But all positions of power, I think, can get misused by people. That doesn't mean that the position itself is necessarily wrong. I'm gonna use the British monarchy just for familiarity's sake, but the point of it is, if you get down to the base of it, is to look out for the British people. That's, that's what it's supposed to be for. Moreover, it was believed that this place had been given to people by God. Like that's, they had felt that, that this was their job by God to look out for others and to die to self. I know some of you are thinking, ha, 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 have you seen their house die to self? Like, what? Like the, the crowns and the jewels and the servants, how is that possibly dying to self? Well, if you've watched the, the Netflix series, The Crown, it follows around the life primarily so far of, of Queen Elizabeth. And you'll see that it's not the most 
glamorous job all the time. Yes, there are things like servants and money and fame, but those things come with no privacy, constant criticism, and considerable stress. It's a wonder that typically or often the people who want these jobs, these monarchy jobs, are the people who don't already have them. Right? Like she spends the first half of the, the series complaining that she got input in this position. It's hard work. But that's only the case if the person that's doing it is doing what they're supposed to be doing and looking out for the people the way they are supposed to be, as a servant. Part of being a selfless servant is being okay when bad things happen to you or things don't go your way, when it's good, good for the other people, for their people. Who are your people? Who are the people close to you in your life? And family, of course, falls into this, but it's, friends, it's not just family. Because if we all just looked out for our family, what, what happens to people who don't have families, right? Who, who's in your sphere of influence? Are you using your, your, your possessions, your time, that sort of thing, to, to bless them, to look out for them? Or are you using it mostly for, for you? Jesus taught us to love everybody, right? Love our enemies and and everybody in between. And elsewhere, Paul tells us that while we were still sinners, so while we were still enemies of God and in rebellion to him, Jesus was willing to still die for us. That was how he looked out for others. Sometimes I complain about having to pick up friends at the airport. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory of God the Father. Friends, this is the simplest way that we can describe what life as a follower of Jesus should do, and that's, it's two words, it's glorify God. What that looks like, though, is, is going to be wonderful, and it's going to be complex. But notice when Jesus, or sorry, when Paul writes down, therefore, he says, so because of what Jesus has done, therefore, God glorified him. So maybe you've heard the expression, when in Rome, do, do as the Romans do. This is a, sort of a colloquial expression that helps us when we're in a new situation to look to see what other people are doing so we will know how to fit in. If you want to live life well, only following the author of life will do. So now we've learned the motivation. We've learned some means. We have even seen Paul's depiction, or the early church's depiction of the master at work. So we have a lot of information with which to hopefully 
act. But you can see, hopefully, that the circle of knowledge and impact, it's not complete until that next step is taken, right? Because at this point, all, that's all that is. All we have is concepts. All we have is information. All we have is knowledge from this passage. It, it is meaningless until it actually gets put into practice. Until we go. I want to tell you, as we close, a story of a, a woman I know. And this woman is, is one of the most selfless ladies I've ever met. She loves to cook, and she cooks for people typically, uh, or often in need, often most weeks. Recently, there was a, a family uh, that was and, and still is in her community, very hurting, and she came over with this big roast, and, and not only that, but this giant apple crisp and this big Yorkshire pudding and all of these fixings. It was evidently it was enough to feed an army. And each week, she likes to participate in her community's kids' programs and always make sure that they have something very special to take home with them, something that they can learn from and something that they can know that someone cared enough about them to take the time. And the community also has this summer program, and they, every year she does everything that she can to make sure the same sort of crafts and those sorts of things are, are done for those kids. So after that week, they have a bunch of super awesome souvenirs to be able to take home and look at and enjoy, show their families. She likes deals, so she travels unbelievably long distances in her vehicle and goes and buys things and not just for herself but she takes orders and is looking out and tries to help other people get these deals too. Is she, I could keep going on and on and all the while she's doing this, she's doing a business and also looking out for her husband who's been doing not super well lately medically. I, don't, I see some of you nodding and probably know who I'm talking about. It's it's not somebody actually in a, in a far-off town. It's somebody that's right here in our community, and, and that's, that's Miss Marg. That's Margie Oak. And one of the coolest things about Oak Ridge, and one of the things that Sarah and I first know or found out about Oak Ridge when we got here, is there's, there's a lot of Miss Margs in this community. There's a lot of people that do and go above and beyond other people. So just like Paul had Jesus to look out for and to look at, to, to follow after, and then the early church had Paul and a bunch of the other saints there, friends, we have so many people, men and women in our community, that we can look to as our sensei, as we all want, we want to be gospel guys and gals, right? And to look through, look for inspiration on how we can love other people in our community. So I want you to take stock this week of your circumstances. I want you to look around yourself and get a lay of the land and say, what, what position do I find myself in? And then I want you to, to talk to God. And I want you to ask him, God, who in my life can I bless today? Who in my life can I do something for this week? Who can I put before me? Because God, life isn't all about me. It's about others. It's about thee. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this uh, wonderful privileges to know you and to see you and to be able to experience you and have a relationship with you, God. And, and 
we're so grateful for the chance that we have to, to love people in our community. Father, sometimes we, we like to be able to, or we need to be guided. And so now, Father, we ask that you, you lead us, you guide us to these opportunities, these sacred moments that we can be a part of, be present in, and to show people, first and foremost, your glory and your love. Help us do that today, Father, we pray in your name. Amen.